Today's podcast loaded. A lot of different adventures on this one. Joy Taylor from Fox Sports talks Dolphins, talks her career, and also why she can root for two NFL teams. Ray Dalio, legendary hedge fund manager, uh, also an author. I've read his most recent book, uh, Some Warning Signs About the U.S. Economy. We're going to do something a little different. And then life advice. Oh, and also worst take. Do we have any new entries into the podium? Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Today's open. We're going to talk college football. I'm going to give out the top 12 teams in college football. I'm going to do it every week, uh, usually on Wednesday, um, depending on, you know, the Mondays is going to be always NFL and then probably half the time college, but I don't want it to be rankings every Monday. So we're going to do it at least on Wednesday for this one uh, now. So here we go. Just some rules before we get to my top 12. Because I'm going to do top 12 because, you know, eventually it's going to be 12 teams in the playoffs. Uh, I don't care about stats after three games. I just don't. You know, you'll see graphics or teams coming in. I mean, here of the top 10 offenses, yards per play, Maryland, Duke, and Kansas are in there. Um, top 10 defenses, points allowed, Minnesota, Tulane, James Madison. Uh, so there's a lot of teams that haven't played anybody. And again, I'm not even knocking Tulane or James Madison, certainly not Kansas as an offense. We know Maryland is going to be a little bit better this year, but there's just it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because half the teams have played nobody and the other half, you know, may may have a really tough non-conference on there. They had an early conference game. All right. Another part of my rules here, uh, as far as ranking the teams, which will be different from what's in the AP and the coaches, have you done one thing that is remotely impressive? Have you done at least one thing? And that would be a nice out-of-conference win. Uh, I have no problem with teams playing in FCS. I have no problems with some directional thing. I think the FCS stuff that people get really mad about is weird. I, I, you know, when the SEC has a handful of teams playing FCS schools late before a big rivalry game, people get mad about those, but less mad about ones that happen with other conferences in the beginning of the year. So, yes, it sounds like Russell is doing his SEC thing again. Um, but it's just true. It's just true. Like, people are very inconsistent with how mad they get about some of this stuff. Do you play one team out of conference, and there are some programs that do it all the time. Ohio State always does it. They always do it. You know, LSU has done it for years. Bama has done it. Uh, a lot of neutral site stuff, not so much now. Georgia does it. 
Uh, SC, especially with the Notre Dame part of it, Stanford usually always does it. A couple, usually Stanford's non-conference. You're like, God, are you guys trying to make it even worse? So there are programs all over the country that at least test themselves once, and then there's Baylor. Uh, although Baylor did go to BYU this year and lose in overtime. So that was nice to finally see that uh, after a, a run of every single Texas school that they could find that sounds like a made-up Netflix series. So uh, more rules. Does the SEC get the benefit of the doubt? Yes. And so does everyone else. Any other program that's been good over the last few years gets the benefit of the doubt, just like we see in the AP poll. And just like I cannot help myself because I can't go, hey, 12 deep only based on who I thought has proven themselves. Because then I still have to kind of contradict my own rule by being like, have you done just one thing by then playing the reality game of like, say this, say I have Oklahoma lower than someone else. Say I want to go, well, I don't know anything about Oklahoma. New coach. I'm not even going to have them in their top 12. Uh, top 12. The non-conference isn't that good. So I'm going to put them outside. Of, you know, I'm not going to go that crazy with it because at the end of the day, I still have to play the game of do I think Oklahoma would beat team fill in the blank that's ahead of them in my rankings? And sometimes the answer will be yes. Although that is giving them the benefit of the doubt and having a pre-bias about an organization that's been really good for a while. So do your rules contradict themselves? Yes, everyone's does. Assumptions have to be made. And as we move later into this, I will look for your win. Uh, I've mentioned this before, too. The cost of a loss versus what I think this team is. A loss has to mean something, but it, it, when it's when it's one loss and it's a team that I still think is really good, it doesn't mean that I'm automatically just going to put you behind somebody else who I think you're better than because they're undefeated. And that's what becomes the constant battle with this. is the resume and eye test in a constant battle of do I always default to the resume? And my point, my point is just very consistent with this is that it's not consistent. And ultimately, none of this shit matters. If I have your team six and the AP, they're four, who cares? All right, moving on. Georgia number one, no debate there. I'm going Ohio State two because I still feel like the Notre Dame game, even though they were down at halftime, that offense is loaded. The receivers are loaded again. I don't know what Bama's going to be like unless some of these guys on the outside develop and develop quickly. Prentice seems to be the number one option for him. I've mentioned their recruiting rankings, even though they had lost a couple from these back-to-back monster wide receiver classes, uh, but we just haven't seen enough of it at this point. And I know the Ohio State concern is on the dip, is on another side. Of, I would rather today in college football, hell, even in the NFL, I would rather have a dynamic, how are we going to stop these guys' offense than a lockdown defense? Because I just think the way the game is played with the speed and the spreads and these athletes everywhere, like even when you have a really good defense, there's going to be games where you're still giving up 30 points. I mean, I guess unless you're Georgia. Or some of the Clemson teams. So top three, Georgia, Ohio State, Bama. I'm putting USC four. I thought the win against Fresno State last Saturday night was like the last game that was still on. So I got to watch them for a good chunk. Uh, They are another offense that seems horrifying. I don't like their defense as much as teams behind them. But a dominant win against Fresno State, you know, for how the game played out. Fresno State's got some guys there. Uh, That that was a good win, even though not a Power 5 non-conference. I'm putting a question mark next to Clemson. Clemson. We could sit here and say, well, they haven't played anybody, and this gets back to it. When people constantly, like the Danny Cannell theory, that only SEC schools are given the benefit of the doubt, Michigan is fourth in the AP. They haven't played anybody. Clemson's up there. Oklahoma's up there. All of them, blue blood programs that are getting the benefit of the doubt because of either how they ended last year, the personnel that is back, or a nice start to a season where they've been dominant against not much competition. These are all carryover thoughts because we have nothing else to go on because we are as clueless about college football as we are about any other sport because of the turnover. 
right? It's just in August, you don't know. So that's why you default to some of these programs. And that's what happens over and over again. And it's not just about one conference. So I have USC fourth. I have Clemson fifth because I don't know, but I know I'm not going to put them like outside of this because that would be ridiculous because the defense is that good. Um, and I think, I think the offense is, is better than last year, but I don't know. Michigan's offense looks terrific. Looks like they have a ton of weapons. It looks like they've actually um, found a way to, not like you're going to supplant two NFL defensive ends like they had last year, but it doesn't look like it's a lost cause. But again, they haven't played anybody, but I have them sixth, which feels good. Kentucky's at least got at Florida. You can sit there and be dismissive of who Florida is now after watching them, um, not only in the Utah, the Kentucky game, finding a way to win this past weekend, despite Richardson struggling big time the last couple of weeks. But I don't look at winning at Florida as just some super easy thing to do on a Saturday night. I just don't. And Kentucky has now beaten them um, at their place, I think now twice. Uh, back-to-back wins at Florida this first time that it happened in like 40-something years. Penn State, I have eight. That's higher. It feels like a lot of people like Penn State that are locked into college football. The voters don't seem to like it. Maybe it's the close game against Purdue. Uh, I don't think beating Auburn is all that hard because I can't believe Finley would get another Power 5 gig in the SEC, their quarterback. I just think he's kind of lost back there. And they have some different options. Singleton, the freshman running back for Penn State, is really that special. And Isaac, number 20, the defensive end, he needs a different number. Uh, I don't like him at 20. makes him look smaller than he is. That guy was one of my favorite players this past weekend. So, yes, Penn State, close one with Purdue. But at least they went down to Auburn, despite the fact I don't think much of Auburn's offense, or at least the guy running their offense. Uh, Again, I can't believe Finley would get a transfer job at another school like Auburn that quickly um, because I just don't think he's that good of a quarterback. All right, Tennessee, win at Pitt. You know, they're ranked. Give me Tennessee at number nine. Arkansas, a win against Cincinnati. Massive turnover, uh, but it's still something there for Arkansas. And that's where I have Oklahoma. It's lower than everybody else is. It's probably wrong. Um, it feels like I'm giving myself or giving Clemson and Michigan the benefit of the doubt more so than Oklahoma. I am, and as I pointed out in the intro, I will contradict myself with these rules. But Dylan Gabriel, if you go back and look at what he did before he transferred in his first couple of years, how clean he was. He's not the biggest guy, but the run he had last week, it's just a little bit of a reminder. Be like, man, look back at this guy's numbers uh, when he was at US, UCF. These, these are stupid numbers, stupid touchdown interception uh, ratio splits on that. So I got him 11. And I put Washington 12. They were up 29-8 on Michigan State. It's something. Uh, I thought about Oregon putting them back in. I wasn't going to do that. I thought the same thing about Utah. I even thought about Baylor a little bit here with some of these one-loss teams. But at least Washington with Penix, the Indiana transfer. Like it looked, they're, they're different on offense. They're more dynamic on offense. And to dominate a team like Michigan State, which is still... You know, I don't necessarily love their quarterback either, but a team that you feel like is always going to compete, uh, that was that was a that was that actually was something that showed me something. So there you go, my first top twelve of the college football season. This episode of the Ryan Russell Podcast is brought to you by State Farm. All right, football fans, the good neighbors over at State Farm wanted me to tell you that you really don't have to get all that personal to get the personal price plan. Seriously, there's no need to tell anyone that you make custom DJ remixes of your team's fight song or that you memorize the choreography to every dance routine of your team's cheerleading squad. Those are uh, a bit more aggressive. I think the one, like there's a jersey, maybe it's unwashed. 
you know, you get a nice little win streak going together. I had someone, it wasn't glove at the park. It was a glove at home. I'm not going to tell you what age I stopped doing that because it's kind of embarrassing. Um, started when I was young and went a little bit too late. Uh, and you know what happened? If they made an error in the field, my glove wasn't going to do anything. But I did, I did have a moment there. I had a little, little stretch there where I was definitely a little too personal about it. That's right. The State Farm personal price plan simply helps you create an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com today to create your State Farm personal price plan. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. This is something that's long overdue. We should have done this a while ago. Joy Taylor, Fox Sports, uh, joins us now. Uh, she got kind of dressed up for us, though. So I don't know what kind of vibe she's putting off this early in the morning, but we appreciate it. Yeah, huge <laughs> hoodie and <laughs> hat, right? I actually should have done it. That that would have been funnier. I regret not putting like a gown on for this. Yeah, whenever I did whenever I did Cowherd's show, I would try to find one of like the, the deal was at ESPN, right? All the shows would get t-shirts made. Although when they made the Rosillo show shirts, they put KFC gold logos on the sleeve because that was the only way anybody would pay for them. So there's some sick Rosillo shirts with this huge honey mustard dripping logo on the sleeve. Uh I can see if I can find it a medium somewhere. But there would be these shirts that were left over from different promotional events. And I always thought they were hilarious. So I would always grab like one and I go, this joke is going to pay off big time down the road. So whenever I would do Cowherd Show, when you were on it, I would wear one of the old promotional things from the free bin. And half the time he would get it and like half the time he wouldn't. But I do have a Cowherd one that just old logo. It's like 12 years old. It's really people have offered me money for it. I'll wear it out socially. So you definitely anyway. could sell that. Put it on Poshmark. I tried to do Poshmark when I was moving from Connecticut. I was like, you know, I have all these dress shirts. <clears throat> They've been through the wars and uh, nobody wanted any of them. It was a huge, it was a huge disaster. It might've priced a little too high. That, that might've been it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, thanks for doing this. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is a, this is a big deal. Your podcast yeah. is a big deal. I feel very honored. I'm well, not being sarcastic. It sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not. <laughs> I don't mind. That's okay. I didn't know, like timing wise, we had planned on having you for a while. And then the Tua thing happened, both for me and Tua. Uh, we know where your your heart is is placed when it comes to the NFL. Where are you right now with Tua then? Because you know what I said last week where I was like, man, after week one, I feel like this isn't going well. And then he turned into a Hall of Famer week two. Yeah, poor timing for that take, Ryan. It happens sometimes. It can um, happen. You know, I think we've talked about this before, but I've I've gone through quite a journey with Tua. And I think you're probably now aware, uh, well, I don't know how much time you spend reading your mentions, but Dolphins fans are very protective of Tua. They're very split on the organization as a whole, which is understandable because there's a lot of trauma associated with being a Dolphins fan over these you know, past 20, 25 years. But they really love Tua, and it's been fascinating to see how the organization has handled Tua. So where I am at with Tua right now this year is I think he's going to have a good year uh, for multiple reasons. Obviously, they put a lot of really talented pieces around him. They shifted from a defensive coach that clearly we can you know assume from all the reporting wasn't that really into Tua in Brian Flores, and shifted to a offensive coach and. They also have backed him, which to me is the most important thing. I'm, I have this theory on young quarterbacks and I will die on this hill. 
that they should start early and right away. And we've sort of adopted this mentality that if you take a rookie quarterback, you have to sit them. And I think it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's silliness to me. You should see what you have in them as soon as possible. And everyone's like, you know, all delicate about their confidence. And I feel that there's value in failing. So with Tua, the organization tried to replace him three times. They didn't start him over Ryan Fitzpatrick, which I feel was a mistake. Then they tried to replace him with Deshaun Watson very publicly for an entire year until the trade deadline. And now we know that there was something going on with Tom Brady and the organization. So they never, they took him where they took him in the draft, made this whole production of it, and then never backed him as the starting quarterback. So I don't know how anyone could be successful in that situation unless they were just otherworldly awesome. Like these are young people we're talking about. We were young once. We need people to believe in us, especially in a position like that. So we all knew Tua had talent coming in. I mean, I had questions about his durability because he had injuries in college and that's not my favorite, but we all knew he was talented. It's not a big reveal that young quarterbacks need talent around them to succeed and that they need the backing of their organization. So I'm not surprised that Tua is doing well. And I think he's going to have a nice year because they're actually doing the things you're supposed to do to support a young quarterback. Like if you suck, you suck. And it's just going to come through no matter what the organization does, right? But he doesn't suck. He's, he's shown growth. But the organization has just been wobbly with everything that they've done to manage him. And I just, I don't know how they, why would you do that? Like you're hustling backwards. Do what you're supposed to do. And if he's not good, then you know. But now they're in kind of this weird space where people still doubt whether he's good enough, even though he is performing. And it's like, yeah, what did you think people were going to think? You never believed in him. Yeah, that's always kind of my tell-all with uh, with any quarterback that I like or don't like. You know, and, I, and I've had a good run, and maybe the run is over with the Tua stuff. But, you know, when I didn't like Kirk Cousins when he was in Washington, I go, the team didn't want to pay him. Like, they have a starter who supposedly puts up decent numbers, and they don't want to pay him long-term money. What does that tell you? And now, um, Garoppolo, I didn't like all that much uh, for a long time. It's like, wait, they put all of this into go, going to get Trey Lance, who didn't really even play a final season in college? Like, that kind of tells me something. Uh, Tannehill, you know, like, they went ahead and drafted somebody after, like, two really nice statistical seasons after another team had already moved on, and yet Tannehill's actually this rare success story of a guy who's somewhat productive for a new team as a former first-rounder. So when the organization, and they would argue different stuff on the timeline on Brady, they would argue, oh, wait, we, we weren't as interested in Deshaun, which I think is total bullshit. Um, I think it's really easy to say you weren't interested in a guy that's a bad PR hit when he ends up somebody somewhere else. I don't I don't believe anything about what they have to say about Deshaun. Uh, and then, you know, Fitzpatrick recently was kind of talking about too a little bit. So when I always feel like teams in the NFL will kind of tell you, they doesn't mean they're right all the time, but they'll tell you if you doubt a quarterback and the team starts doing things that tell you they also doubt him, like listen to them. So I get Miami fans. Uh, it's actually been kind of funny with their passion for it. But again, it's it's all selfish. It's my team spent a high pick on this guy. We're going to watch him play three or four years. I, I He has to be good or we've wasted this time. And then we have to start the whole process over again. So usually it's not football related. It's selfishly motivated 
you know, motivated based on how you feel about your team. You know, again, this isn't unique. It happens everywhere. It's just a weird debate to get into. But the thing is, is throughout all of it, there'll be there'll be players where I go, oh, I think this guy's awesome and I'm rooting for him. Or there'll be somebody who I'm like, this guy sucks. And I think like everybody else, you're like, you know, it would be a lot easier for me if he sucks because I've said I think this guy's going to suck. For Tua, I want him to be successful. I just, after that first week, I felt like here we see it again. But you're you're so right about Flores, too, because you could tell from the play calling alone, it's like, man, they do not trust him at all. And to see McDaniel just go like, look, we have no choice or we're going to move on from you. So why wouldn't we do everything possible for you and finally figure out the answer if we have the right guy? And that's what I think we're at least going to see this season. Well, I also don't get the mentality that you have to elevate lesser players. Like everyone thrives with better people around. them. Why do you, what is the struggle competition? Like, oh, he didn't have uh, especially players around him and he was just, still successful. Just to interrupt too, like, especially the young guys, like you want to, like the, the crazy thing about Brady is they almost did it out of like this odd spite because Brady could pull it off. Rogers can pull it off. Um, Hell, even Deshaun at times, like what he would do with nothing around him just from the football part of it. But I I agree with like what's what pride, especially when it's still a rookie contract of like, hey, let's let's make sure he doesn't have anybody. I think it's insane. And 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 fans and media reinforce it too. They're like, oh, well, like he can't be that good because look at what he's throwing to. Or like look at his offensive line. Like, so you get the he's getting criticized for playing with great players. Like Patrick Mahomes kind of gets a little bit of this, like, oh, well, he walked in. Look at the situation he came into. Andy Reid and, you know, he, he's got Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and he, he didn't have to play right away. Like sat behind Alex Smith. Like, yeah, but he's still really good. And he still went and won a Super Bowl and the MVP. And he still looks pretty good. They're, they're 2-0 still. And everyone said they were going to be done without Tyreek Hill. I think maybe he's just good. I don't like taking away from someone because they have pieces around them. I get it. It is something to elevate lesser, but they, you also can't win that way. So where it comes down to for me generally is I, I like to look at the macro of the situation. So for all these situations, I look at the organization. What did the organization do? It's why I never weep for, for organizations that have to pay their quarterback. Like that's the whole point. What do you want me to say to you? that you found someone worth paying and now boo-hoo, you have to pay them. It's the only position you should want to pay. It's literally the only position that you should want to budget for is a starting quarterback. And now you're crying about it. And then you bring in a rookie guy, but you don't have any plans on putting an offensive line in place, which is like the first thing you should do. Forget weapons. You should put an offensive line in place because they're going to struggle and they need time because they're a young quarterback. And then you complain about having to get pieces. It's like they don't do the obvious formula for young quarterbacks and then can't figure out why they can't win. It's like uh, seeing it with Justin Fields. Like, what do, what do you want me to say about Justin Fields? He's playing for Chicago. We've seen Chicago do this a million times. Like, literally, this is all Chicago does. Is Justin Fields talented? Sure. Are we going to see how talented he is in Chicago? I don't know. My guess is no. Because they're not doing what they're supposed to do with a young quarterback. So with, that, with all these guys, I think it becomes very difficult to evaluate what they're capable of unless they're really very obviously visually talented, unless they're a Justin Herbert, right? Where you can just see like, okay, this, this guy is doing great things. If he gets the right things around him, he's going to be great. 
But that's where I think the evaluation with young quarterbacks becomes very fuzzy for me because I have to look at what the organization is doing and we have no control over what organizations do, you know, and neither do the players. Like we've been in dysfunctional situations. I mean, you got to be really excellent to thrive in those situations. And if we were really honest about it, we probably didn't thrive. We were just good enough to navigate through. But our work wasn't the best when we were in a dysfunctional situation. So with sports, we really put a lot of pressure, which is fair, and expectations on young guys to come in and be awesome right away. And I don't think, you know, it's boring to talk about how good the offensive line is. And it's boring to talk about, you know, how the organization is drafted. You know, we just want to evaluate them and look at their numbers and compare and make power rankings. But if we're really honest about it, most of these organizations fail these young quarterbacks. Okay, so your original fandom was was based on the upbringing of PA, though, right? Steelers. Yeah. And so the Miami thing, is it is it because you work there? Obviously, the connection to your brother. Um, that's, that's a new thing. You're allowed, I guess, you know what? I think you are allowed, based on your unique dynamic, to have two NFL teams that you care about. Normally, I think it's a big pushback. But I think anyone that would tell you that, I think that's kind of like, all right. If you have somebody else whose brother is this special at some place and then you work in it, I, I think you're okay. We're going to clear you here. Not that you needed it from me, but I, you know. I have a split jersey. I have a Steelers, one of those split ones. What other names or is just the color? The colors. I'm joking. I'm oh, joking. you do? Oh, okay. No. All right. You no, got me, I, Joy. It's so I early. Not. I do not yeah. have one of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh fans are obviously very passionate. They wrap the babies in terrible towels at the hospital when they're born. It's like a cult. It's like a sign to you. Um, but what I if you don't want that? What if you want something more protective of a newborn? I mean, they still put them in the baby clothes. They just kind of draped the terrible towels over them. Okay. I'm just saying, like, are they sanitized? Anyway, keep it moving. <laughs> uh, but I was also a Dan Marino guy who's a pit guy. Okay. So... Uh, I always had an affinity for the Dolphins, but my fandom, yes, was based off of my brother going there in 1997 when I was 10 years old. So I grew up watching the Steelers and, and continued to watch the Steelers. Like it was 97. We're not, you know, on Sunday ticket. Um, so watching the Steelers, but also obviously watching Jason in Miami for 13 years of his 15 year career. Um, had to watch the Washington football team. Sorry, the Washington Commanders. And the New York Jets for a year during his career. The Jets year was actually fun. That was the the, the Sanchez year, um, AFC Championship game against the Steelers. And yes, I rooted for the Jets. The funny thing is, fans always like get get very funny about it. They're like, "Wow, how can how can you, you root for the Dolphins? You're a Steelers fan. Like, I don't know. Do you care? Like, do you have a family? That's a weird question. Like, it's it's my family. It's my brother. Yeah, gonna, like. I think the other day was it was it Marcus Freeman, the head coach of Notre Dame, when they were playing at Ohio State, and they showed his dad in the stands, and they're like, "Those are actually his season tickets because of the biggest Ohio State fans." Like, what is the dad going to do? Like, huge third down stop against ND, like get up in his Buckeyes gear, and be like, "Yeah, like of course, like that's all temporary, man." When your kid or a brother is involved with that, yeah, that would have been really weird to tell Jason, like, "Hey, sorry about the loss." But, yeah, but, know, I, but I'm really hyped for the yeah, Steelers. Yeah, I was, I was going to be so bummed out if you guys won. Yeah, my college football weekends are insane now because Jason is coaching at the U. And my nephew Mason is playing at LSU. And my nephew Isaiah is playing at Arizona. 
So like my tweets are very insane. I'm like, but, yeah, go <laughs> Who did you Haggers. Who did you root for in college before all of this? I mean, I always liked Miami. So that that was an easy one. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's 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 weird. Like I've I have three college football teams that I'm very closely watching this year. But it's fun. Like I'm it's fun. And it's also it's also a kind of flashback experience because I forgot what it feels like when uh you lose and it's like your family members team. Like however bad you feel as a fan, it's it's indescribable how much worse it is when someone like you actually care about is on the team or coaches for the team. It it probably makes you better too because you it's it forces you to not watch the ball. Yeah, you're watching everything. Right, because I'm sure all you did was watch your brother in the matchups. And now uh, I know you went to what was it Arizona when they played at San Diego State? Yes. You went to that game. Was that during the heat wave too? That it was, was 110 funny. degrees. I felt bad because that stadium is really nice. And no one's there happy. though, right? It was just so hot. It was sold out. It was oh, it, it was, was completely packed the first quarter, but it was it was unhealthy hot. Like if you had kids out there, you couldn't you couldn't sit out there. Like I'm fine. I'm an adult. I'll go get some shade. But uh, it was really hot. All right. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to laugh about heat stroke or anything, but it's just a classic example of social media because people were posting pictures of how empty it was later on uh, after that game. So you have have you been to Baton Rouge then yet to see the other nephew who's who's getting a ton of run right now too as a freshman. He's enormous, yeah, ha- by the way, too. So I haven't been to Baton Rouge yet. I'm planning on going to the Alabama game. So, I mean, it's tricky, obviously, because I'm in Los Angeles. It's not the easiest place to get to. Um, but I'm gonna try- I, I have I booked my flight for the Bama LSU game. So if I can figure out the transportation to get back to L.A., then I'm going to go. But I, I mean, I'm definitely going to go to his games for sure. Yeah, that's the best one. That's the one I've gone every year, except for COVID getting in the way of a, of a couple of them. There might have been a Hartford flight situation, too, that wasn't super easy. You're trying to get to L.A. to Baton Rouge, try Hartford Baton Rouge uh, every single year. Okay, so I want to stay on this because I actually think this is, this is uh, you know, you and I have talked about, I've been on your radio show. I, I always say I was on with Colin uh, a bunch of times when you were doing that and now that you've moved to speak. I personally, having so many female friends in the industry, I think there's certain things that have happened over ESPN the last few years where women are getting bigger opportunities, better opportunities. I think a lot of the hosting stuff, the anchoring stuff that was traditionally like, oh, it's always going to be this guy or whatever, like that has shifted. But the opinion space for females is still, it's not, it hasn't been happening. You are in an incredibly unique spot. Uh, and I know how hard you've worked for it, but the opinion part of this uh, the numbers, it's not even close. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's still a very hard thing for a female to get those opinion spots. How were you able to do it? Well, it, it's been a long, long journey, obviously. It's not something that happened overnight. But I always wanted to do opinion. It was always my goal to be in the seat that I'm in now. So I really intentionally shaped my career with jobs that would lead to this space. So when young people ask for advice, I always ask them the same thing. What do you want to do? Because, you know, when, when you're young, you, you it's terrifying to say, like, I, I want to do this. Like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a game show host. Like, you feel like you're limiting yourself because the world is just your oyster and it's fun that way. But if you really decide what you want to do, you can intentionally kind of 
make a path in an, in a business that really doesn't have a traditional ladder, you know? So I loved radio growing up because I loved the ability to feel like you're in a room with people that you can't see, you know, like a morning show driving in, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm 35. So radio was, you know, morning radio shows, you drive to school, you drive to work and you, you create these relationships with your favorite show. And a lot of that is through the personality that those kind of shows would have. And so I always really admired Oprah and Howard Stern and just the, the command that they had over their audience and the ability to know exactly what their brand was. Because this is obviously back when brands were, you know, not, not everybody had a brand. So I always wanted to get in radio because it was a long format platform and podcasts and YouTube Live and IG Live and all that didn't exist. And I felt that radio would give me the best platform to get to this space. And, and it did, because when you're doing sideline reporting or you're doing, you know, anchoring, it's good to be seen, but you're not, you are not the story. You're delivering the story. And I never wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be an opinionist. So my internships were in radio, both uh, a music morning show. It was a lot of talk and a sports radio morning show. And then I was a producer in radio and eventually got a radio show in Miami. Obviously, I was doing radio as as early as this summer. And, you know, the show that I obviously had with Fox Sports Radio on the weekends throughout the season last year and worked on the biggest sports television radio simulcast with The Herd for the last three years. So to me, um, that really helped put me in a space where people heard me giving my opinion, even if it wasn't on a full-time opinion show. So that, that was always important to me. I, I took jobs that would help me get to that space. I didn't take jobs that wouldn't help me get to that space. And, you know, I also have been very blessed to work with some of the best opinionists in the business in Colin and Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp hmm. and had a great opportunity working in Miami, doing a radio show, a four hour morning drive radio show in a big local market that really helped me sharpen a lot of the tools that I use now on the show. So, um, you know, it's not obviously an easy seat to get to. And I take it very seriously that I am one of the very few women in the business that has a seat on an opinion show daily. But um, I feel confident about it because that's what I've done for the past 15 years. And also at a podcast, you know, years ago as well, to, when, when I was doing Undisputed, which obviously isn't a big speaking um, space, although I would have moments on the show, the podcast kept me and kept me giving opinions and kept that muscle strong while I was working in a space that was giving me a big platform, but wasn't necessarily giving me a big voice. The Colin role is really tough. It's really tough, you know, because one, he's doing his solo deal, which he's done, I would say, as well as anybody longer than everybody. Uh, it's just really hard in sports. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe somebody else I'm not thinking about. I'm not thinking about local. I'm talking nationally. And then you have to figure out how to get in. I thought that relationship grew and it got to like a really comfortable space there. Of course, you're going to want more. Uh, give me the behind the scenes version of Colin. Uh, that maybe people don't know about. Or when Pete and your friends ask you, like, what's it like working with him? I'm obviously very close to them. I try to explain to people he's he's different. 
but he's different in the best way and that it's what makes him so good at his job. But give me your favorite Colin stuff. Well, Colin is, I think people, the misconception about Colin is that they think Colin takes himself very seriously. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Like he's, he's not that guy that is going to be like walking around and is just weird with people. Like he, he gets it. And, and, I, and that's really what is uh, very, very charming about him to me. We obviously got better the more that we did the show, but I had done the show a bunch before I actually moved there full time because I was the fill-in person on The Hurt before when I was on Undisputed. So we really didn't have a, a huge adjustment as far as like the beats of the show went. But my role in the show evolved a lot over time. And obviously going through the pandemic and doing three hours a day, five days a week with no games was an insane time. But it also kind of changed the dynamic of the show because we just had to talk. Like we just had to make mouth sounds and fill this time in a really crazy space. So he's, first of all, he's like a very, he's a very, he's more of a sensitive guy than people know because he has a bunch of kids and he adores his wife. And, you know, as, if you do a show with someone for five days a week, for as long as we did, which is, you know, a three hour show, like we're, you're, you're spending a lot of time with people, um, you know, you go through things in life. And he was really great with me when I was, you know, struggling with stuff. And you still have to do the show every day, even if you do have, you know, personal stuff going on and still do a good show. Um, he's just a really good dude. Like, I, I feel really lucky to have worked with him as long as I have because he made my life really easy. He's just a very laid back person to work with. Like, he doesn't care if you need to take a day off, you know, to go see your family or, you know, if he needs to lean on me to like talk for a couple minutes because he just needs a breather. Like, we got to a really good, comfortable space with the show where it was very seamless. And a lot of that was just, he's, he's just a good dude. Like it was really a very, the show itself was a very low stress experience for a big network, you know, huge simulcast show. And, and that's because Colin is just a very low maintenance. He's a low maintenance talent. Um, if, if, and that seems crazy because so many people have this opinion of him that he's like, he's like, very, I don't know, like he just has this opinion of himself and he really doesn't. He's kind of a lot of different things at once, but at the same time, like he's a really loyal friend. And if you get to know him, yeah. you're like, oh, this guy's, you know, he's actually not. Uh, I think you have to be an egomaniac to be really successful at this. And all of us have egos, but his isn't the type where you're just like, I can't stand being around you for 10 minutes, you know, where there's other people where I'm like, dude, you could turn it off now. Like we're not, this isn't a download. Like there's going to be no downloads with this right now. So we're good. Uh, a couple other things before I let you get started on your day here. I like you started in local. And then for me, I, you know, I was lucky. I, I was local for a very short time because I was desperate to get a job and I'd gotten laid off. And so therefore I had a tryout at ESPN where I never thought they were even going to listen to the tape. I had the tryout, you know, boom, it worked out. You were local for a while uh, in, a, in a big market, though, in Miami. And it is kind of funny, the difference between like when a local guy starts going crazy at me because of something I say, part of me laughs more than I am upset because I'm just like, yeah, because you're a local guy, like you lose your shit about anything. 
that has to do and you take it personally and you think you think it's like somebody decided to wake up today to be like let's just dump on this city all right like this is just one big cycle the national person has one big cycle of all the local markets thinking that it's specific about them i'm like actually you aren't special enough for me to want to just go at you because i also remember being local person going this fucking guy like he hates us like this is bullshit like i I think it was really important for me to have both experience to realize that everybody's just way more mad than they should be about the whole thing. But you, I think, kind of went through that too a little bit. Like you can just get away with way more being local. And then there's this kind of reset nationally where you're like, wait, I get, it's not toning it down. It's just being a little bit more careful, uh, which I think you would agree with because I know, I know we've talked about this. Oh, yeah, 100%. But there is a there's a mentality to it as well, like the loyalty that you have to display for local markets is important to the fans there because that's what they care about. So your audience cares about their local teams and they're loyal to their local teams. And anything that you say that is negative or can be perceived as negative is going to be painted as uh, the enemy and an attack on the city or the teams. And then all in, you know, to be fair to local markets, sometimes it is like, sometimes it is an actual vendetta and you find out later what the real issue is. But most of the time, it's just the national people giving their opinion. My adjustment, I think has been a little different because now it's not as, it's not as taboo to have fandom. You know what I mean? Like it's almost encouraged to be like, hey, my allegiance is with the Dolphins and I grew up in Pittsburgh. So I'm going to have, you know, some sensitivities to the, these two teams and I'm going to be open about it. No, and- this is this is a great, sorry to interrupt, but it's such a great point because when I first got started, it was still like, you could tell the person that actually was from the area would almost go. Everybody thought I hated Boston once I became the national guy, uh, which isn't entirely true. Uh, locally, they thought I hated Boston, but national people would be like, wait, he's the Boston guy. But they're like, yeah, but if you actually really listen to him, I don't think any of that plays out. Like you can overcorrect to the point of like, I used to be, again, when I was just a Red Sox fan, I'd be annoyed with Carl Ravich because I knew he was from Needham and he'd be on baseball tonight. I'd be like, how come he's not a little nicer, a little more supportive about this? And it was just so, it was absurd. It was such a dumb way to feel, but I was a young guy that had never done the job. So I'm sorry I interrupted, but it's shifted. You're right. It's totally shifted where it's actually more fun, especially for the opinion people. Just go, hey, this is who I'm into. This is what I'm doing. So go ahead. Yeah, like you, and I think the audience prefers that you be transparent about it rather than that experience where you're like, I I think they hate us. Like, why do they hate us? Or like, like, why, why are they so sensitive to, why are they always saying really nice things about this team, even though I don't really like them that much and they're really not that good? Like, yeah, because I'm from there or because this has been my experience. This is my team and I'm just going to be open about it. So I think, I think the business has shifted a lot over the last, you know, 10 years where you kind of just have to be honest about where your allegiances lie. And it actually makes for a better show because then people aren't fantasizing about what you hate or what you love and they just know it. And then they can, you know, they can consume your material in a way that makes sense to them as opposed to it being hostile. But yeah, I mean, the national thing also, I think it's not so much about being careful. It's just, when you, when you do local, you're so hyper-focused on those teams and what pertains to that particular area. And when you do national, obviously, you're, you're talking about teams that you, you really didn't cover that closely. 
or, you know, there's not nuances that you aren't getting into with the fan base that only that region knows about. So you're kind of just, you're not going as deep. You know what I mean? So the passion and the insanity that we have as sports fans is not going that far because that's not your experience. You know, there's, there's things, there's nuances to the team and history with the team that you've watched and been passionate about for your whole life that a national person who's just talking about the story is just not going to know. Right. So that means now, you know, you've got, this is a good moment for you and the two of people out there. Thank you for taking it easy on me, uh, considering what happened on last week's pod, but, but we'll see how these next few weeks go. All right. Cause I haven't, I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's going to take a little bit more than 30 minutes for me to go, Hey, I'm totally wrong. It, it takes me about four. It'll have to be like four straight games. You know, it's probably even longer than I've been being totally honest with myself, but, uh, well, look, this is the business and we react week to week like maniacs uh-huh. to everything that's going on. We've already uh-huh. got the Super Bowl sharpied in and we know it's a very long year and every single year we do this. I will say I am not a I am not a zealot about the Miami Dolphins. I am not surprised by how two is performing, as I explained earlier there are things you need to do to support young quarterbacks in order for them to be successful. It's not about Tua. It's more about the trauma of watching this team have moments of success and then squander them by doing something dolphin-y. And I actually think the fan base is is pretty split um, on what's happening with the team. And I don't think it's because they don't believe in the players. I think it's because they're having the same experience as me that every time the Dolphins start to have some sort of success. They, they find some way to mess it up. And it's like, what you, why, why are you doing this to us again? And they build all this momentum and they have all the success and then they blow it up or something happens. So that's more along the lines where, of where I think the, the Dolphins fans are split on what's happening right now. There are fans, there's a, you, I'm sure you know about two and on. I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's like that group. And then there's all the other Dolphins fans that are like, hey, love our win this week. Let's see what happens next week against the Bills in division who just squish the Titans like bugs and <laughs> who are, who's not a, not a bad team. Uh, they look unbelievably dominant. Let's see how it goes this week, you know? And then maybe a couple weeks from now um, before I start freaking out. And that's not, I mean, that's not fun. Like, that's just, that's just not a fun fan experience. So it was just a lot, it was a lot more fun after last week. And you know what, that part of it's like, wait, this might actually be real into year three, which is, I think the excitement around the whole thing, because you had that the trauma, because then, you know, I'm not worried about the trauma. (laughs) Well, it's, it's just a toxic relationship. You're like, okay, I know this dude is lying to me because he's always lies to me. But maybe this time he's not lying to me. And then the worst thing that could happen is this time he's actually not lying to you because he's definitely going to lie to you for the next five times because he got you to believe this time. And that's like the relationship of being a Miami Dolphins fan. It's like every five to six times they're telling the truth. (laughs) That sounds like just a bad run on Hinge, to be honest with you. So I don't know what you, what are we talking about anymore? Uh, You can see Joy every day, 4.30 Eastern to 6 Eastern, right on Speak. Thank you so much, Joy. Uh, We're big fans. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, 
a little rock, hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Worst take on the podium. So what do we have on the podium? Because last week was the first one. So we now have to figure out if any will be replaced. It's going to be tough. Uh, Our initial podium was number one was the Gilbert Arenas Giannis thing, which is, man, that's going to be it's going to be here for a long time. Number two was Bart Scott on multiple Chiefs takes, including that no one's afraid of Patrick Mahomes in the division anymore. And number three was the Kendrick Perkins, uh, Patrick Beverly and Russell Westbrook could be the best backcourt defensively in the league next year. Yeah. You know, did I t- even mention that when we did the arenas thing, I listened to him then on NBA radio. Did I mention that on the you air? Did. I, yep. I did. Okay, you right. Did. Yeah. He still had Giannis as the second best player in the NBA. So it was I was actually more confused the more I heard from Arenas. We need to get him back on again at some point because I did I enjoy to. him quite a bit as a guest. Okay, so uh the goal of this is do we have any submissions that replaces any of those on the podium from this week? It sure. feels a little early. Feels a little early for this. Uh okay, Suri, you go first. Wasn't the biggest hot take week. This was actually from last week. We had just missed it because I think it came a day after we did it. No rules. No rules. Another first take. Uh, This is this is Matt Dog and Stephen A arguing. And the the reason this isn't going to make the this isn't going to make the podium, but I just want to play it because it's another like laser beams pointed at Earth. Like life depends on it. Take and uh, so this is Mad Dog and Stephen A talking about Kirk Cousins versus Lamar Jackson. Life on the line. Oh, God. Uh, Kirk Cousins or Lamar Jackson? In a big game on Lamar the Lamar Jackson all day, every day. Ahead of Kirk Cousins. Cousins listen, is underrated. Is that water check? What are you drinking this morning? If you think that Kirk Cousins is Great Lamar goose. Jackson. He's made a lot of money yeah, in the Kirk NFL. Kirk Cousins or Lamar Jackson. What's wrong with you? So, yes. Mad Dog would take Kirk Cousins over Lamar Jackson. One game, your life depends on it. Uh, it's not the hottest take in the world, but it's, it's an asinine take. Like, come on. I'm going to make the motion that that should replace the Pat Beth, Russell Westbrook <laughs> wow, backcourt. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's so bad. I know Cousins has that Saints game from a few years ago in the playoffs. Um, and Lamar's playoff record is not uh, what you would want it to be for somebody that's MVP. It gets put, but I mean, at this point, uh, by the way, the, the part of that Dolphins game that was lost was that was as precise as I think I've seen Lamar in a long time. And he does not run. So he he runs as as this this backup plan to all the other stuff that he's going through. There's just too many quarterbacks. Like there's a lot of quarterbacks. It's really more in college, and I it just drives me nuts. One read, I'm out. One read, I'm out. I don't think it's sustainable. I think I saw it a little bit with Kyler. I thought Lamar was actually really good. Although that last series when they needed them to keep the chains moving, uh, it wasn't great. But yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna. That's my position. You know, this is a tribunal here, so you know, whatever. All right, Kyle, the go ahead. Will come later. 
Yeah. My yeah. uh I I promised I was crowdsourcing this and if you guys aren't good in the crowd, I'm not going to have anything. So this is a uh, just step it up guys week. I got a bunch of Manuel Acho. Wasn't really interested in any of that stuff. Um it's more just like why'd you say that? Not like, "Oh my god, are you serious?" So I didn't really want to do that. So I think we just I don't know if if Bart Scott's get knocked off, but if there is a chance it's going to be this right here. I'll say something that I don't think will be it's going to be popular with Miami fans. Do you want me to get aggressive? You want me to share a take I'm afraid to share? Something you think about at home and write down in your legal pad and go, I can't say this after week one. I'm going to say, I feel like two is a backup. <laughs> <laughs> had to be done. Uh, needed to be done. Would have been disappointed had it not been done. I Because I almost, I was going to, I'm glad I didn't go. I'm glad the order, because I needed to bring it up. I'm all, I'm all for, if you guys want to vote it to put it on the podium. I don't think it's better than what else is up there. It's just, it should definitely had to be played in this segment, I think. Yeah. I got to tell you, hearing it back though, I was, I was really fair. I was really fair about it. I think I'm even calling myself out a little bit with that one. There was, there was some selective editing on that because afterwards you obviously go on to be like, I love Tua. I love him in Alabama. (laughs) I want him to be great. Yeah. yeah, There's, there is a little bit of like creative, you know, aggregating there. Um, that's like the Jared Goff. No, that's like the Jared Goff video that I did get pissed about because I was like, you guys edited this to make it look like this is the only angle of the Goff discussion. And it ended up on some Rams fan blog. And then it ended up on Freezing Cold Takes. And I was like, you guys are using an edited video of this. Again, I didn't respond to it because you're just going to look like a loser by even trying to suggest. Yeah. So uh, whatever. My take, on this, my take on this is simply that it's not, it, it could be horrible in a year. It isn't right now. No way. Yes. Yeah. I think I think that's the way you played out. Okay, mine is there's a lot going on with this this uh, Whitlock Joe Burrow thing. There's a lot going on, but to call him a high class Josh Rosen, when Rosen has shown like it didn't work, man, it didn't work, didn't work multiple places, it didn't work, and it didn't work quickly. Okay, Burrow. What he did last year with that Cincinnati team to get them to the Super Bowl, that to me is like, I always kind of like giving LeBron a half a ring for the 2007 Cavs getting into the NBA Finals. That's maybe a three-eighths of a ring for Burrow to get Cincinnati through the AFC to win at Kansas City. You can't compare the two guys. You You cannot compare Burrow and Josh Rosen. Fair? Period. Right, okay. Yep. Right, there you go. All right. I don't know even know what else to add. Okay, so let's vote on it. Uh, I don't think the I don't think the Burl Rosen thing is good enough to replace anything on the podium, but I did nope. see it going. Like that was just so far. There's again, there's a way more to that that I'm just not gonna deal with yeah. uh, at this point. Uh I'm okay if you guys want the Tua thing on the podium. This is this I don't is know what it knocks off. Mark Scott has to stay because we're talking about Patrick Mahomes here, not not Tua. So I think that one's kind of firmly planted yeah. still. It's does it take this is to throw in the Perkins take. Uh I don't think your Tua one does. You've kind of talked to me a little bit into the Kirk Cousins Lamar one. I still think the Perk one is worse because like he's a Ross is a terrible defender. He's been a terrible defender like for like most of his career. Um to say that he, that this is gonna be the best backcourt two guys that hate each other who might not even ever play together. I, I still don't think that I think that still beats Kirk Cousins over Lamar Jackson. Kyle, deciding vote. I think it's I think it sticks. I think it all I think I think it's still I think we're still right where we left off. Okay, that's great. That's good. Very efficient. Nothing replaced on the podium this week for worst take.
I'm really excited about our guest. Uh, he's, he's a legend. He's, he's done a lot of great things. We'll run through the resume here real quick. Ray Dalio, who is not only an author, uh, manages one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, Bridgewater and Associates, philanthropist, over $6 billion in funding. Uh, his book, Principles, Life and Work, sold over four and a half million copies. And now the book that I just finished, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, is uh, a focus of what we're going to do here. So, Ray, good day to you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, I've read Principles. I've, I've read this book. And you know, we got a chance to talk for a little bit prior to the interview. I want to go back in time to kind of understand the foundation of, of your interest, of your investment strategies, sharing these principles with, with so many other people. I feel like a lot of us have this moment in time where our life changes. And sometimes we know when it happens. But I think there's a lot of times you don't realize there's a thing that happens. You're interested. You discover it. And then you can point back to it and go, you know what? That's the thing that made me change the way I thought. That's something that that changed my interest and put me down this path. What was that for you? Oh, there were two, there were two of them that I, I think. First of all, um, I <clears throat> when I was 12, I caddied um, and I fell in love with the markets. So it was the 60s, the stock market was hot. I bought a, a um, I was, people I was caddying for talked about stocks and I would make $6 a bag. If I got $50, I'd put it in the stock market. And um, the first stock I bought was uh, the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. I figured I could buy more shares, so if it went up, I'd make more money. It was a dumb strategy. But uh, I was lucky because the stock tripled because it was about to go bankrupt and some company acquired it. I thought this game is easy. And I got hooked on the game, right? We're talking about games. We all play our own games, our own sports. Our own. That was my thing. So that was then. Then in fast forward, 1982, um, biggest mistake I made, most painful mistake, one of the best things that ever happened to me, and that was a turning point. I had calculated uh, in 1980-81, I had calculated that American banks had lent a lot more money to foreign countries than those countries were going to be able to pay back with the type money, and that there was going to be a big debt crisis. And I got a lot of attention for uh, anticipating this, um, and it happened. August 1982, Mexico defaults on its debt, and other com- countries follow. I thought the stock market was going to go down a lot. That was the exact bottom of the stock market. It went up a lot. I lost money for me. I lost money for my clients. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help pay for family bills. And that was a, an ex, you know, a terribly painful experience. And that changed my whole approach to decision making. Okay, It gave me the humility I needed to balance with my audacity. To make me think, um, you know, I could be wrong. How do I know how whether I'm going to be wrong or right? And and what I did by it, it gave me that humility, gave me the open mindedness to try to find the smartest people I could find who would disagree with me to stress test my thinking. And it taught me how I could reduce my risks by a factor of five without reducing my returns by diversifying wealth. It changed my whole approach to life. So those two points, I have a principle. One of my main principles is that pain plus reflection equals progress. In other words, I've come to believe 
that when you, you know, when there's a message in pain. And when you get that message, it tells you something about how the world is really works that you better learn, pay attention and learn about. And then I, um, I would write down a principle for dealing with that situation. Again, I literally would write it down um, in a journal and I accumulated those principles because of the, that experience. So those were my two big ones. My life, my, I wouldn't be in the game I'm in. I wouldn't be succeeding at the game I'm in. And I wouldn't have had the approach to life that I'm describing, which not only has helped me in the investment business, my particular game, but it's told me in life. It's the same principles that I use in every all of my decision-making. It could be taking care of my health or something. Right. The reason I, I enjoyed this book so much is, that, you know, it got me thinking about things in a different way. You know, we all kind of have our different financial philosophies and where we think this is all going. You know, a lot of us, uh, spend, you know, certainly... <laughs> You're more educated on it than I am, but I love your love for history and trying to figure out some of this other stuff. So before we get to the six stages of kind of how a society works, how an empire works, uh, which I think is really telling for where we're at right now in the United States, can you explain kind of the three cycles that are the precursor to these six stages? There are three big things that are happening now that never happened in our lifetimes like now, but happened many times in history. And I learned a long time ago that the things that surprised me often were things that didn't happen in my lifetime before, but happened in history. So, for example, I studied the Great Depression. And because I did that, I was able to anticipate the 2008 financial crisis, and we did well in it. Um, And those three things are the amount of debt that we have and debt creation, the production of debt, and the amount of money printing to finance that debt. And that is producing our stagflation. And so I needed to study that in in history. The second is the amount of internal conflict that we're having. Uh, We have the largest uh, wealth gaps. We have the largest values gaps. And we have the largest political gaps, the least coordination. You have to go back to 1900. I'd like to measure everything. So, And there is a situation here where those uh, populism of the left and populism of the right and fighting over those things can even threaten our democracy because there's even questions of um, how will will either side accept losing the major election. And so that's a big thing. It'll have a big effect and is having a big effect. And it'll have more, I think. And the third factor is um, the changing world order because the changing of a dominant power um, relative to competing powers, particularly China. In other words, 1945, the United States uh, won World War II. It accounted for half the world economy. It had 80% of the world's money. Money, Gold was money then. And it was a dominant power, much less so today. Now it's comparable. There are other powers. And so you're seeing a difference in world power dynamics That is reflected in the the Ukraine war, the rise of China and so on, that is producing greater conflict. And that has knock-on effects because, well, you could see uh, the war with the Ukraine has that effect. If we had something comparable with China, it would have um, an order of magnitude effect that's much larger. So those three factors are 
um, are new to, you know, they're new. And I went back and I studied them and I saw that they repeated throughout history. What causes the rises and declines of empires and the rises and declines of wealth and so on? So that was what I needed to study. I needed to go back 500 years. It sounds like a real long time, but it actually isn't. And you watch these rises and declines. And I put that out, not, not just in the book. It was, the study I did, I didn't do because I wanted to write a book or do a study. I did it because I needed to make decisions now. And, and I put that out in uh, the book, but I also put it out in the free video called The Changing World Order. Anybody can watch it on YouTube. So those are, that's the reason I did it. Those are the three forces. And if we look at everything today that's happening, really how things will turn out will be largely driven by those. Yeah, and it's 22 million views on YouTube for people that want to check it out. And I, I love that you went to the 1500 and it was just sort of random, but I started reading the latest Magellan book. And, you know, it, you can feel like 500 plus years is such a long time ago, but there's so many similarities. There's so many similarities and anything that I've read historically from that point on, I'm constantly reminded how we're not that different. We're, you know, the way the media would work, uh, the way investing, you know, <laughs> they were investing in different things. But I mean, we're talking about Magellan at the beginning of this time in the world's history of like, all right, I'm going to get some investors. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to start sailing around and see what we can come back with. And there'll be a return on the investment if this boat stays afloat and we come back with with rare, you know, spices or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to talk about regarding exactly. trade. Exactly. And it's so cool because, you know, the world changed. They much the way the world's changing. It used to be before then, it was agriculture. If everybody thought wealth was, um, I have a property and there was a certain power structure, the nobles, the royalty, and if I got, and it was agriculture. And then we entered the age of exploration. I mean, a whole different discovery. Like you can go and get to these places and you could take all this wealth. And it, just as you described it, it was a financial transaction. Hey, I'll fund your, your endeavor. And then you go get the wealth and it made, it changed who was powerful, changed who had the money and it was no longer the landowners. And just like that continued on so that they invented then capitalism was invented by the Dutch the first time that then everybody can get into the action, first stock market. And then, then we had uh, the industrial revolution. Individuals could make money and you could invest in those individuals and so on. And it brings us up to today. So, yeah, it's the same story. You know, it's almost uh, uncanny to me. Like, I watch it. It's the same story that happens over and over again. Just, it seems to me like just the, the clothes that people are wearing and the technologies they're using change. But basically, the story remains the same. It's it's so true. And there's a million examples. Um, and so taking that and I, I don't know if the number if it was 29 empires or 31 empires that you studied and it starts just repeating over and over again, as you point out in the book, the different charts. Hey, this one's on the way up and now it's on the way down. And it's, so that that leads to the kind of the six stages that, that I was talking about. I don't know if this is a time Ray, where you think like it's good to kind of transition over into that. But yeah, once. I'd be happy to describe it because it's a pattern that happens over and over again. Um, there's an order. An order is a way of doing things, a system. You know, you know 
Um, we have a, a, a democratic, um, constitutionally based uh, order, and we have capitalism. Those are our systems. And uh, then there's a cycle. So here's how it begins. Most importantly, the world order. You, um, for various reasons, usually very large wealth gaps and um, a lot of economic stress due to too much debt, too much spending, quite often um, uh, difference in values um, leads, um, and, and by the way, acts of nature play a role into this. Droughts, floods, and pandemics have also created that stress, creates a conflict between two sides. And so you start to see that those two sides become more and more parallel. Um, opposed and, and polarized, and populism begins to emerge. A populist is um, an individual who will fight for my side and not lose, that will win at all costs and fight for my side. And so you see that in the French Revolution, the uh, Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, all of those, you get this polarity developing, and then you have a conflict. That can happen internet, domestically or internationally. The last time we changed, the, that leads to a war. Who's got the power? Because being polite and going to the, believing the legal system and following all the rules is not as important as winning at all costs. And that last happened in 19, ended in 1945. So 1945 was the end of World War II and the beginning of the existing world order. We won the war. The United States did. It accounted for uh, 80% of the world's money, the things I mentioned before, it was the dominant power. That's why the United Nations is in New York, the World Bank IMF in Washington, D.C., that was the world dominant order. During, uh, after the war, nobody wants to fight uh, um, again, and there's also a big restructuring. You write down the debts, you, and, and, and it's a great equalizer. And so people come back and you enter a period of peace and prosperity and, and because you've done the restructuring and, and the people are working together. And that's the most prosperous period. And as you have that advances in those, that prosperous period, um, living standards rise, it's the best. So if you take the post-World War II period and you carry that forward, you know, that was the best. The stock market's the best. Everything's the best. And then, uh, but that power becomes a dominant world power. And because it's a dominant world power, it's uh, money is the world's money. So you can go back to the Dutch or the British or the Americans, and you could see that when they carried that money around with them, they, when they paid, it became a world's money and it became the world's reserve currency. And that caused uh, others uh, to want to have it and save in it. And when they save in it, then the, that lets the country lend in it. And as they become also richer, they become more expensive. And then along the way, other countries learn to become more competitive. So, for example, in that age of exploration, the Dutch invented the best ships to go around the world. And they brought their military and they were the great explorers. They brought back great wealth and so on. They became more expensive as they got richer. They worked differently. They, they didn't work as hard. They began to enjoy life and so on. 
and the British invented, uh, learned from them and then made better ships cheaper. And so you see the British Empire begin to emerge. And then you see the conflict between the Dutch and the British. They fight. And then you have the dominant British Empire, the emergence of the British Empire. And that continues until then they overspend and they get into World War II because then there's another rising power, the Germans and the Japanese. And then the, uh, they got into financial trouble. And the United States came out of that as the beginning of the world empire. So you start to see that happen. And you also start to see as they get richer, then everybody believes in that the future will be a bright, the stock market goes up and so on. And people will more and more borrow money in order to make investments in stocks and so on, or, or they'll be confident in the prosperity and they'll get overly indebted. And then also it distributes wealth differently. Um, so the, um, uh, in all of those cases, large wealth gaps uh, emerged because um, the process uh, distributes wealth differently. And that can create resentments and can create uh, a, a situation where even the system isn't as fair. It's not as much equal opportunity um, in order, let's say, in education and those types of things. So then you get to the point where um, there's much greater, there are worse financial conditions that exist because that country has borrowed a lot of money. It's become less competitive. So a classic measure of that is what share of GDP do you have? Or what share of world trade do you have? For example, China has surpassed the United States in having a larger share of world trade and is about comparable in terms of its size economically. So it's clearly a rival. And then you have competitions on those technology, just like we're having right now with, with China. And then you have um, those issues in terms of internal conflict over debt and money. And then you get to the conflicts. And the conflicts is a combination of a financial crisis and financial wars between countries. So you're seeing the very classic case right now of, let's say, as we take sanctions or you take um, the financial economic war that is existing between uh, the Ukraine and NATO countries in terms of cutting off gas to Europe and so on. You see, uh, you see all of that develop. And so then you have the conflict because you have irreconcilable differences. In other words, people, as, they, as these uh, cycles progress, they become um, more and more alienated. The middle is not accepted. It's no longer accepted. You have to pick a side and be on that side. Traditionally, that's been the case. The middle, um, it becomes less and less, and the fight becomes more intense, and it then becomes uh, dysfunctional. There were, um, for example, in the 30s, four major democracies. There were democracies with parliaments, mm -hmm. you know, congresses, and four major democracies chose to become dictatorships because the internal conflict was so de debilitating. So that's what a typical arc is like. Um, and that doesn't mean it's, it, it's destined, but it means that um, you, you have to follow that arc. And what I did in the book, and really the study turned to the book, is I measure everything. You can measure all of these things with numbers. So you can see it in an objective graph. It's like going in and seeing a health exam. You go to your doctor, you take your blood test, your urine analysis, and all that. 
and you could see the condition. And that's what's shown in the book. So that's the, that's the cycle. And the, um, the main um, point is you see the acceleration of the economic warfare, the wealth gaps, the internal. The main thing is, do you come to the physical military fighting on either side? When blood starts to be spilled, you're beyond reconciliation. And so uh, we're seeing a bit of that, uh, of course, uh, with related to the Ukraine. We're seeing greater re- risks of that related to China. Um, and we are seeing, you know, domestically, not um, uh, blood being spilled, uh, fortunately. But what you're seeing is uh, a great polarity that's changing even um, how people are dealing with each other. They're moving to different geographic areas. Uh, it's changing the economics of states um, and so on. That's a long-winded explanation of how the typical cycle works. So you can, but with that numbers, as you watch these charts and you show the charts, you can see objective measures. There are then 18 measures that I put together that are um, that you could see. For example, education. Um, are you improving your education or worsening your education relative to other countries? Are you improving your productivity or worsening your productivity? Are you improving your financial balances, your income statement and your balance sheet of the country, or worsening that? Are you improving your infrastructure or not? Those are all measurable, and that's what we see in those charts, and that's the pattern. You have the United States in stage five. Uh, you, you threw out a couple numbers there where I think you were like, how likely, as you mentioned, you can measure all of this. How likely is the United States to have some sort of internal actual civil conflict? Uh, you put it at 30 percent. You have other markers for um, domestic conflict uh, between 60. And, uh, I guess it goes zero to 100 percent. But you have the United States kind of in that 60 to 80 where 80. Basically, what I'm getting at here, Ray, is that you you could say 30 percent slow and it's not concerned. The fact to me, 30 percent felt high. And I guess I could argue, well, is the sensibility of a developed society today different, even that much more different just 100 years later, that it wouldn't lead to this? But whether it's the wealth gap, the educational gap, which is probably more damning uh, because of the long term losses that you're setting generations at, um, like it's, it's very alarming that the United States, based on your models and your projections, is on the other side of prosperity, stage five, with another global power like China. It just feels rather ominous when you get through the 500 pages of the book. Well, I think the, I think the first question is, is it accurate or not? And I think that that's the most important question in terms of the measurements. And I don't think, um, and nothing's precise, but I think it is accurate to say that our financial condition has deteriorated a lot. Meaning we're spending a lot more than we are earning. We are building up a lot of debt. That debt, one way or another, will either have to be paid back in hard money or will have to be monetized and and, uh, depreciated. It's not exaggerating to say our infrastructure has deteriorated in terms of um, that. Certainly relative to other countries, um, there's been a big rise also in other countries' conditions. And it's certainly the case that if we were to look at, let's say, education measures, you can look at those. And I can go through a number of those. I don't think it's doubt a doubt that the United States' relative power 
to where it was in 1945 has uh, deteriorated much. And I think that the internal conflict measures, you can measure, for example, um, votes across party lines. They are the lowest since 1900 in terms of political uh, fragmentation. You could look at the voting records and you could see that they are the most polarized. The left is the most left. The Democrats would be the most uh, liberal that they've been, the Republicans are the most conservative that they've been, those things. And so it, it, I think it, it, it's a reality. Now, the question is, um, if it's concerning, um, um, I, th I think that's a good thing that it's concerning. I have a principle. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you worry about some of these things, then you'll deal with them. You'll take, you'll, you'll compensate. You'll be better off. You'll invent ways of dealing with it. If you don't worry, if you, we don't worry about our togetherness, our financial health, our conflicts with each other and our conflicts with others, um, and we don't worry about those things, um, then you'll probably continue to follow the pattern. I can't anticipate the future knowing what it's like. I mean, meaning I've seen the arc, I've seen it play out over, and I'm, I create the dot plot, and I just then put in numbers as they're transpiring, and it's correct objectively that it is in that stage. Now, the question is, is that accurate or not? Well, you can look at the measures. You can judge for yourself. There are still many good things that exist. There's a lot of inventiveness, creativity. There's, you know, it's it, and, and the United States, um, it, you know, has been a wonderful country. I've lived the American dream in terms of there's no country in the world that the people can come to from all over the world and they can be citizens and they can be effective and there's into uh, you know property protection and rule of law and all of these things that are wonderful things uh but still there is that dynamic that uh, can be confusing if you don't measure it and plot it and so i the measurements and the plots speak for themselves i have a few more things that i want to get to here uh quickly warren buffett once said years ago the luckiest person in history is american child right now your book makes me think you would disagree with that. Um, yeah, yeah, I would disagree. I would, I would disagree with that. I would say the luckiest person was um, Warren Buffett or I, who was born. I was born in 1949. What a tailwind I have had! I was born, and he was born a few years before that. We were born at the when the United States was on top, when there was um, a, a, the wave that we have had to be the most wonderful country in terms of opportunity. I experienced that equal opportunity. I, I was, you know, the basics. I had two parents who loved me, took care of me. I went to a public high school that was a good public high school. And I came out to a world of equal opportunity. I think that's all anybody needs. And, and I think that if, by any measure, you'd, all of those have deteriorated. So, um, yeah, no, this generation is led with um, my generation, having screwed things up a lot, left, leaves them with a lot of debt and leaves them with a broken down infrastructure. 
You know, um, some countries, like I went to Singapore, they have saved a lot. So rather than have a debt, they have assets. And their budget, um, 20% of their budget is paid for by the money that they're earning on their investments because they're creditors. We have this debt burden that is a bad debt burden, a broken down infrastructure. We're at each other's throats. No, I think that being born today, of course, there are benefits. There's better technology. There's better health care. There's better um, other things, you know, uh, wonderful. But the conflict and the issues and where we are in the cycle, I think, is much worse today um, in terms of, let's say, that opportunity. The prospects for peace uh, are much worse today than they were when Warren Buffett was born or than I was born. Okay, let's get to something that I think is going to matter even more to the audience. And that is, is, as you mentioned in the book, and I'll just share here, you know, some of the debt cycles you talk about, we're kind of at that expiration date based on your projections um, from where we were in the 40s to now. Uh, the printing of money, which is which is hammered home as, as the less, it's the easiest option. It's the most pain-free until it's clearly the most painful. Um, and you're, you're right on it. Obviously, as you know, it's, it's an abrupt devaluation here. What are you telling your investors about the future? What, what is your game plan? What are you telling somebody who's listening now, who's either young in his twenties and trying to figure out what to do or somebody who starts to watch those retirement ads and gets a little bit more emotional or upset about where they're currently positioned? What are you telling, you know, a broad base of investors and how to prepare themselves for the future? Well, um, a few things. Um, debt assets like cash and bonds will have negative, likely to have significantly negative real returns because, so pay attention to what your returns are after adjusting for inflation. Don't look at just you know nominal returns. So if you earn 3% in a bond and the inflation rate is 8%, think I've lost 5%. So pay attention to in inflation in your returns. And, um, and then um, number two, um, I believe that uh, debt assets, like bonds and so on, and cash, money market funds, are probably not going to be good assets because of the fact that um, those debts are a burden. And the central bank has got to make it either good for the debtor or good for the creditor. And in the long run, to devalue those is probably going to be the path. So that's, a, that's a, another point. Another point is uh, don't try to be tactical. Don't try to play the game. And so instead of trying to get in and out based on what you think, you're not going to win that game. You're probably going to lose that game. You'll probably uh, want to sell when things are bad and you're nervous. And you probably want to buy when things are booming and you think that that's great. You could see that happening, for example, in the tech. Or you could see it happen in uh, Bitcoin. You know, you see certain things, they become very, very, very hot. And people don't pay attention to the price. And so when, you know, um, so buy when things are bad, if you're going to do it. And, and so when things are good, do the opposite. But by and large, don't try to time it. But instead, have a well-diversified portfolio. 
so think about you know what are inflation hedge assets and how do they balance with, with stocks and bonds, and also um, think about that uh, also a bit globally. So that, those would be the advice I would say. Uh, also, um, um, invest in in the things that uh, you know and need um, f- first. Um, you know, um, if if you're in a profession or you're in you, you know if if you're own a grocery store or you whatever it is and you know it, then uh, that's a good thing to invest in because you probably have that down. You that understanding, um, and 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 your home or the things that you need, um, like the uh, home ownership by and large is is a good asset. You improve it over a period of time; it produces four savings and it works tax wise. So you start with that. I would say also, uh, just do a simple exercise of say how much money do I have, and divide it by the rate at which you spend it. And ask yourself, how long will that last? Okay, you have a certain pool. If money didn't come in, and I think that if you start to think, you know, how many years of um, uh, of I'm going to be okay if money didn't come in um, is a good thing to have. I, I I went through that. I didn't have money, and I went through that cycle. And I remember feeling good when I got to about three years. If I said, mm, no money came in and I got three years worth of savings, and um, I felt good when I had one year. Because when I got one year, I know that that's enough wiggle room to figure it out. So whether it's one year, two years, three years or whatever, and 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 make that secure because when you have that element that you have that, you, then you know that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. In, in other words, you can figure it out. It's the person who gets down to a limited amount of months or, you know, just a, a couple of months and you can take a hit. Just imagine um, what the, the situation uh, would have been if those checks didn't come in for a lot of people and a lot of companies. So to, to be able to be secure like that, and then you have to take that money and that you have to save it or invest it well. Everybody's an investor because everybody who's got some savings has got to put it into something and that makes them an investor. So diversify, look at the returns in real terms and really think, don't you know, have less risk in inflation adjusted terms, have less risk when you don't have uh, as much and then you can go take more risk once you get past whatever your time horizon is of having enough money. I want to tell you how much I appreciate you spending the time and also appreciate the amount of work that you've put into this. And I think one of my favorite things about uh, your books, Ray, is that you question your own knowledge, you know, and I, I remember having that moment in my life where I was like, the more I read, I was like, wait, do I, am I really dumb? Do I know nothing? <laughs> because as I kept reading more and more, I would, I would start questioning everything I thought about things. And I love that and you do that's that. A, that's, a, that's one of the keys I found to my success in terms of like that, 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 um, whatever success I've had in life has been more due to my knowing how to deal with what I don't know than anything I know. Okay. And the ways you can do that 
is, is two ways. You can have others stress test your thinking, find the smartest people who disagree with you, and also um, diversify. Because diversification will not lower your returns. You could take equally good returning assets or investments, but they're in different places, and it could reduce your risk to 20% of what it would be if you didn't diversify without reducing your returns. If you know how to do those types of things, it'll help you a lot. For people that want more, I would encourage you to check out the book, The Changing World Order, Ray Dalio, and also the website, economicprinciples.org, almost a companion piece to all the stuff that we've talked about. Ray, this has been a pleasure. I hope you had fun. Uh, Thank thanks so much. Thank you for also helping me uh, communicate. I'm um, at a phase in my life where the most important thing I could do is try to pass along some of the things that helped me. So thank you for helping me do that. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Um, staying with the investment topics from today. Uh, we had an email here, said like a year ago, <laughs> I asked about advice for investing an inheritance until things cleared up so they could buy a house in Japan. Ryan's advice was, quote, don't do anything and don't ask a sports show. It's good advice. <laughs> I just want to let you know I followed his advice and made 4 million yen. Four smackaroos. 4 million yen. Uh, What's the translation there? Um. Well, I say he's the exchange rate, he said it was 105 to the dollar. Now it's 140. So I think the yen today, it's, is it a thousand yen to just under $7? So, um, so he said how many, how many yen? Four. Four million yen. So he said the exchange rate. So if you go, it's about 20, 28,000, 28. Hey. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. 
You are welcome, man. It was easy. That was an easy one. Ex-wife beach house. 44 years old, 5'7", 200 pounds. I take a brisk walk with my dog each morning. This may be a good question for Kyle as he is a child of divorce. Kyle, you got your, you got your divorce overalls on? Yeah, I'm perked up. Uh, my ex and I do not get along. She cheated on me and married my friend. Fuck. Slash neighbor. <laughs> Come on. I was thinking about this the other day. This has nothing to do with the email. There needs to be a different category of quarterback fuck-ups, like the Carson Wentz stuff or Jameis Winston. Um, that's the weird thing about Kirk Cousins' Monday night game is that I don't think he's any good. I've never thought he was good. I always thought he was kind of like fraudulent stack guy. And he was just, he wanted Slay to have a pick so fucking bad. He's like, have another one. Please take another one. Like that was, people are kind of doing this primetime Kirk thing, but I felt like it was still the primetime Andy Dalton thing was far worse than even primetime Kirk. I just don't think Kirk is that good. I think he's just, you know, even though last year he had better moments, I was looking for him. Anyway, my point is this, is we need a new category that's not just interceptions. It's called my wife hooked up with my dad plays. <laughs> like just devastating. There's nothing you can fucking do. There's no coming back. And so I know you'd have to, it'd be what, M-W-H-M-Ds? <laughs> and it's just a new category on the sort tab, NFL.com, ESPN.com. Wentz has them where, like, if you look at Wentz, if you did a blind resume of Carson Wentz's season last year, you'd go, oh, that guy was pretty good. And you're like, no, he wasn't. They couldn't wait to get him out of there. I also think it's part of his personality. They want him out of the building, all those things. Yeah. But we need a new category where it is a turnover by a quarterback that is like, you're not recovering from it. Just like if your wife ever sat down and was like, hey, last week got a little loose. I need to tell you something. I hooked up with your dad. There's no way. You, it's not an interception. Not all interceptions are created equal. Anyway, moving on. This guy's wife left him for his friend and neighbor. There's a lot to unpack and lots of details to include along the way. But the major points to include are that uh, while we were married, I took on the role of primary parent to our kids. So instead of pursuing a more lucrative career in my 20s, I became a teacher while she kept her corporate job. As a result, when the divorce happened, there was an obvious income disparity, especially since her current husband makes well over six figures, too. There is just bitterness oozing out of the internet reading this one uh with some big boy decisions hard work and some good luck i've closed the gap a little but she still has the boat the pool etc how does she have the pool she has the house then right i think that's, I would assume they so, usually come attached yeah just fenced out the backyard that she, would be way worse like ah she's fucking at the pool again today bring it john um, again but, but good for this guy. Sounds like he's on the comeback trail. All right. A few months after my separation, I was hit with another major life event. My mother was diagnosed with ALS. Oh, maybe I jumped to the jumped the gun here. Uh, my family's from Connecticut. Shout out. Uh, but my parents retired in an awesome little beach town in North Carolina in 2010. I've been in North Carolina since 2007. So I say that I was lucky to have been so close to her and kept my uh, and her and my dad. And I was able to visit almost every week uh, to help out until she died. Obviously, my kids, aged uh, late teens here, have grown up going to that little beach town. We have memories of family and friends there, including getting married to my current wife on the beach there. Oh, so this guy's got a new wife. All right. Nice. All right, this is a roller coaster, man. Now for my question. My ex is looking to buy a beach house. My kids have come to me and told me she's decided she wants one in the beach town, in the one beach town on earth that I have roots. North Carolina has over 300 miles of coastline and many, many beach towns. What do I do here? 
Do I reach out to her, risk inspiring her further to buy something since she will see it as a way to screw with me by doing this? Both my kids think she's crazy for looking there, but I don't want to put them in the middle of things, which I think is the most important thing. Um, by asking them to tell her not to do it. Do I just suck it up and say whatever happens, happens thoughts? As a side note, Ryan, don't ever get married. Uh, side note, Steve, don't ever get divorced. <laughs> All right, noted. Kyle. <laughs> Wasn't planning on it. Good luck. Kyle, good luck. Ah, yeah, motherfucker. Says Kyle, good luck. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I think it's lame. I think it's lame. The ex, you know, there's beach houses. There's a lot of beach towns. I think it's totally lame. I would not have the kids do it. Uh, you clearly don't like her. Uh, it sounds like things have worked out after a really bumpy road there for what feels like a decade plus. And now you want to kind of enjoy your little beach town. Uh, we have a rule about this stuff, you know, like anybody that's ever had like a tough breakup. Uh, you know, if that person's more ingrained with that one, it's kind of like get out of my town deal. You know, they may she doesn't even have any roots there. She has none. So I'm totally on your side here. Uh, she was already dealing in a deficit too with the friend neighbor situation, but yeah, it's, it's, don't put the kids in the middle of it. Don't have her, them relay the message. I mean, you already don't get along with her, so who cares? And if she's actually petty enough to then be like, well now, cause he doesn't want me there, I'm going to buy a beach house there. Then you should never feel bad telling her how you feel. You know, that's, that's a weird one. I won't, you know, I don't know her. If she's actually capable of doing something like that, it's so fucking stupid. So, um, there's a really good chance. Let happen. Whatever happened, you know, go ahead. Uh, maybe you could pay off the realtor. Just have have that realtor show her the worst properties ever. Like when you show up in a realtor, like one time I looked at an apartment, there was no living room. And he was like, well, Manhattan Beach, you're going to be outside of the lot. I was like, not where, like, I watch a lot of games, man. I'm not going to be outside that much. So uh, I don't know if you guys have anything else on this one. I don't have another angle on it other than I think you should just tell her. But if he's afraid that she's going to then spite by. Yeah. I, I don't know. That Is sucks. We're talking to, the, to her new husband. Just say, hey, like, <laughs> we don't want to be near you. You don't want to be near us. Like, can we work something out here? Could you could you plant some eggs and uh, and hey, hopefully like, you know, sway her away from living there. I mean, it'd be one thing if the kids like if this was like seeds. a long term thing. I think it would be seeds, right? Not plant eggs. Some seeds. Yeah, I'm not playing. I eggs. liked I guess, it. It's, it's rolled off the tongue. Just just as I, good. I, I was watching eggs. House of the Dragon last night. I got I got a dragon. Egg okay. in my head. Excuse me. Seeds are the new uh, currency. That's true. Seeds. Seeds are going to be big one day. Um, It'd be one thing if you were like close and like you didn't want the kids to be separated and like, you know, because you wanted to still, you know, see them a ton. But this is like going to be what, a couple times a year. There's no way that they sh that they should be living anywhere near you in the same state like that. I think some people chime in and go, hey, it'd be great, though, for the kids It'd be easy in the back and forth and whatever, whatever, whatever. And then it's like, you know what? Um, you get along with your ex. This guy doesn't. And yeah, there's still some bitterness. So uh, move to a different fucking town. I, I, I think this one's pretty simple. But again. She's going to then, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to tell you to, what to do on the, she's going to then, if you tell her to not do it, then she's more motivated to do it. If that's what you really think she's capable of, then just let it play out. Chances are you'll still be okay. You know, maybe you write an editorial, like an anonymous editorial in the local paper. Like this town sucks. <laughs> then have the have one of the kids just like randomly leave this, whatever it would be called. The, the Johnston Tribune, the Bugle. I always thought the Bugle was an interesting one. Okay. I don't know if this is a compliment or not. So I don't know. We don't like reading compliments here. You know? Well, who's it for? It was from a therapist that you sent me, but I don't know. 
I just started reading it and I went, I have no idea. All right, should I just go blind from a Kyle send in one? It just the the topic is am I a slut? We just want to <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I, I don't remember this yeah. at all. So yeah, let's do it. Okay. Probably just read the byline. You probably were like, let's get this one in the mix. <laughs> 26, six foot, 210, Las Vegas. Uh, he tells us where he works. Oh, I think he tells us the field. We'll just, we'll keep it a little more vague. Bench press 220. And I don't know how you guys are landing on some of these numbers here. Unless you're just, uh, just big two and a half guys. Squat 265. I guess the change plate thing's a big deal. Deadlift 290. All right, in March, I cheated on my girlfriend. Let's call her Jade. Yeah, Jade. Does she, does she work in Vegas too? <laughs> yeah, okay. I know. That's like a Vegas name, if you know what I mean. I sure do. I sure <laughs> do, Kyle. Uh, I cheated on Jade with my ex. Let's call her Lucy at my best friend's. Let's call her Emma. Uh, Emma had a 26th birthday party. We dated for just shy of 18 months. She fit perfectly into my friendship group. Is still a member of all the group chats. We have far too many. Yeah. The backstories were in a rough patch and she put us on a break. I also only kissed Lucy, um, but that was enough for Jay to break up with me. After Jay dumped me, I then had a bunch more beers and went home with Lucy. All right. For the next few weeks, Jay's, Jade posted continuous Instagram stories with quotes that were clear shots at me. That's always <laughs> the best. I had that happen to me once. I brought it back in a text to that person like seven years later. Uh, as well as telling anyone and everyone who would listen how much of a shit guy I am. I know I was in the wrong and deserve it. I don't get it. So wait, he he got put on a break, made out with uh, Lucy, he, and then he, Jay dumped him. And then he, he just made out with Lucy at a party. She found out and she dumped him. I hope that you're telling the truth, guy, because this does this sounds super unreasonable on uh, Jade's part. But no offense, the font alone is having me question everything. But that's all right. Uh, Jade also didn't like the amount of time Emma and I spent together. We exercised a lot together, including swimming twice a week and running once. And is Emma hot? Usually, girlfriends aren't in a huge hurry to have their boyfriends be hanging out with other hot females all the time. Um. Our offices were also close to each other, so we would try to have lunch together if we're both in the office on the same day. The incident caused a divide in the group. Some called me a misogynist, and others, including Emma, were sympathetic and even defended me to the other group members. Stunning. <laughs> All right. Wonder why. I was invited. I wasn't invited to a group activities uh, until we went camping in early June. I was annoyed that they had shunned me but chose to move on. Jade quickly had a new partner, was very quick to flaunt him to the group. And then they quickly broke up and she wanted to get back together with me. By that time, Emma and I had started seeing each other in yeah. secret. So of course I wasn't interested for context. I bought a two bedroom condo and Emma moved in as a roommate. I'm expecting a massive punchline that just says, I can't believe you fucking read this email at the very end. Uh, very early on things escalated. The start of August, Emma moved out. Wait, very early on things escalated. And at the start of August, Emma moved out. We both told people it was because we both have been working from home uh, arrangements and there wasn't enough space in the condo. Things with Emma have progressed really well and we're now to the point where we're ready to tell people about us. How do you guys think we should do it? We both think things would be a bit awkward for the group and we might cop some backlash. All right. Um, I'm glad everyone had to listen to that <laughs> as punishment for me reading it because I also punished myself. I, I have no idea, dude. It sounds like girls really are into you despite some weird rounding out of your bench press numbers. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You're 26. Gives a shit. 
Yeah, I thought that was going to be based on the title alone. That was I yeah. that needed to be way more juicy than just making out with one girl and getting dumped by another girl. And well, it sounds moving. like he hooked up with her after a few beers. Yeah, but he's just I moving don't... around. He's moving around the friend group. I mean, honestly, this sounds like college. You're just a little yes. bit older, but you're in Vegas. So I think there's an extended, extended period of time there. I don't know. Maybe you're fucking awesome, dude. Have you thought about that? Wait, what's the Congrats question? Am I a slut? What's the question? Or or the, or should I should he's we tell to, anyone? Yeah, he's trying to figure out how he could be with Emma and still, I guess, be in the good graces of the friend group. And then his ex Jade wants to get back together with him, but he doesn't want to. Lucy's out of the picture apparently after one makeup I session. Think, I think the more people that you get with in this friend group, the less chance you'll have of being shunned. Because well, I didn't want to be in this friend group. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nobody hey, seems to like. Yeah, you. <laughs> you should just keep running through them, and just it's now a business a business decision. Now it's not even like Kyle. you get, need new friends now. I just mean, hold on, I running just, through them. Well, whatever. I mean, what? Come on, dude, it's twenty twenty two. Yesterday I said, are you, uh, "Who's tugging?" I mean, whatever. So I mean, whatever, the shirt. just just saying <laughs> shit now. But um, I just think that, like, you probably have a better if you wanted to stay, still go on group activities like trivia night or big wooden block Jenga or whatever people do at bars in Vegas. Like, <laughs> like maybe you could, if the more people that you're attached to, the less it'd be, it wouldn't be as easy to like shun you. I think could be, I could be totally okay. backwards in that, but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as juicy as the headline. So there was that, uh, you said, why do you want to be in the friend group? It seems like he's actually doing pretty well in the friend group. Uh, they t- apparently brought him back with his camping trip. There's a sentence that didn't make any sense where he said he moved in with Emma, things escalated, and then she moved out. So then I thought we had another turn. And yeah. It was like, no, we just don't live together now. I don't care. Here's the deal. We don't need a follow-up email, man. Things are good. You're 26. It sounds like girls like you. You know, we get a lot of emails from people that don't have these options. So do that. And, you know, other people have had beers and done stuff too. You know, shout out. So. There's yeah. been quite a few congrats on the sex uh, emails recently. I thought they've been reading like, "Hey, congrats, man! Like you're doing you're doing all right for yourself." There's not really much that we need to weigh in on. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Um, so, okay, I, I, we're done. We're done for today. Today was a long one. <laughs> long pod. Yeah, today's pod was a uh, was an adventure. Okay, um, there you go. We'll talk to you Friday. Priscilla Podcast, Ringer, Spotify. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.